As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show Weekend Review! It was a weekend where MLS returned and the newest franchise got burned. Where Liverpool won the Carabao in a game that finished nil-nil somehow. And Kepa's penalty is still rising right now. Where Bielsa sat on his bucket at Leeds for the final time. And a man named Marsh now sits at the front of the line. Where the Serie A title race kept tightening. Man United is still frightening. And the skies above the Camp Nou are brightening. My name's Ryan Bailey. I am fresh back from a trip that paid tribute to my favourite order at Olive Garden, a tour of Italy, and joining me today is a man who's missed me like Kepa misses from 12 yards, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello, I have missed you. I've been worried about you. I know that you you do go Olive Garden, Starbucks, Hard Rock Cafe. Those are your three food groups. So I was concerned how this trip was going to go, but it seems like you survived. Were you able to find nutrition and sustenance? Uh, Yeah, Milan has the only Starbucks in Italy, so I was delighted I went there Mm -hmm. every day. That was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, have you ever ordered the tour of Italy at, um, at Olive Garden, Taylor? I honestly cannot remember. I mean, probably not. I feel like I was pretty pretty basic when I was going to Olive Garden, which is yeah. saying something. Covers all of the meat groups. It's wonderful. I recommend it. <laughs> the meat groups. <laughs> oh, by the way, I've got to call you Big T for the rest of the episode. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah, that was a new one. That was a new Twitter nickname. Thanks for that, Twitter. I've had many. Big T is a new one. Excellent stuff. And joining us here, Taylor, is a man who's pouring out some of his breakfast iron brew this morning for uh, Marcella Bielsa's translator, Graham Rutherford. You're missing him already, aren't you? I will. I will miss him. And it's a shame that it, uh, that I still don't know his name. <laughs> oh, I did <laughs> he the just for you, be... Graham. Andre Clavijo is his name. Oh, okay. Right. So he's been there for four years. I've watched him translate for Marcella Bielsa for four years, and that's the first time that I have... I have uh, learned his name, found out his name. Well, farewell, sweet prince. I, I mean, I presume he's not dying. <laughs> he's still going to be around. I'm hoping maybe he gets a, another job in the Premier League, but he's one of my favourite things about the Premier League for a long time. I think he might follow Bielsa, depending on where he goes, of course. He may not have need for an English translator where he ends up next, but you'd hope he uh, travels with him and uh, is vehemently disagreed with upon every translation he gives, which is uh, basically his USP, Graham. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I hope Bielsa is kind to him because I suspect maybe he's not so kind to him and that, that he just has kind of, uh, he just gets dressed down when the cameras aren't, aren't, aren't on him. Well, he's not kind to him during press conferences. That's certainly the case, Graham. Uh, joining us to complete our lineup, of course, is a man who will never put an egg on his pizza. Joe Lowry, hello. Yeah, I just don't get it, guys. I, I, I hear you when you say breakfast pizza, Twitter. I hear you. Ryan, I've seen it. I've seen the pictures. I just can't get on board with scrambled egg, which is the initial picture that Tom Bogert posted. Scrambled egg on a pizza. It just feels wrong to me. I mean, breakfast pizza Twitter is a Twitter I never knew existed until this weekend, but I'm, I'm <laughs> glad I do know it. And you had a, a big objection to it. Uh, I weighed it in, Joe, and suggested I've been in Florence earlier uh, last week, in fact, and the Florentine pizza, which literally has a giant fried egg in the middle. Hmm? Yay? Nay? Nay, for sure. I'm not a big fried egg guy. The, if the yolk is yummy, if the if the yolk is runny, it's not for me. That's sort of my motto. I, Graham, I loved your tweet in response to Ryan, uh, just saying, "Oh, they found out you were British, and we're like, ah, oh, we should put a fried egg on there." That feels about right. Also, two other things, Ryan. Your intro made me feel like my dad was reading me a fairy tale, and it was beautiful. I, I don't know, just great work. And Graham saying that his favorite thing about basically soccer is someone that he doesn't even know the name of is also just perfectly Graham. So I'm a big <laughs> yeah. fan of everything that's happened. I also so far. thought he. He was talking about Bielsa for a moment, and yeah, I was me too. very confused because that did not seem genuine to me. Uh, Joe, I'm really excited to find out that your mantra is, if the egg is runny, is not for me. That's good to know. That's good to know. I didn't know that that was an official policy you had. I'll also finally add, breakfast pizza, if you remove the sauce, does that help, Joe? Because you don't have the tomato sauce with it. Yeah, it, it's fine. Like This is a fine food. I'm sure it's okay. I just don't get why I would choose to combine those things. I don't really want to be chewing through a, a piece of scrambled egg before I hit crust. Those textures to me feel so different <laughs> Joe, and almost unpleasant. Eggs on toast? I, on I toast, have man. before, but I don't know. Man, Taylor, maybe this is just a mental hang-up. Maybe someone needs to force feed me a breakfast pizza. <laughs> I, I have never Which one of you is going to do it? Which one of you? I'll do it's it. It's going to be Ryan. Yeah, I know. Yep. I've never Ryan's seen a breakfast pizza. pizza. <laughs> That's how it works. But I've now Googled, I've now looked at Tom Bogart's picture, and that looks dreadful. That even looks for Graham. Terrible. If Graham thinks it looks dreadful, right. can you even right. imagine? Don't rely right. on Graham for food opinions, Joe. <laughs> Come on. Right, I'm going to yeah, Twitter. That's true. I'll be back with shortly. I will say, Joe, we should move on to soccer at some point, but I, I'm with you. If the uh, yolk is runny, it's not going in my tummy either. I like scrambled eggs. Oh, that's a better. I'm changing my motto to that one. Just the rhyme <laughs> in there made it work. Po- poached eggs. Poached eggs have runny centers. They're good. Not, none of you like poached eggs, no? On a Benedict, maybe? No. Yeah, egg not going to happen. Not going to happen. All right. Um, We should probably talk about the soccer. There was an awful lot that happened this weekend, uh, plenty in MLS, plenty across Europe as well. Uh, But there are some more pressing matters we should probably cover at the top of this episode, gents. Soccer and politics, not supposed to mix. FIFA and UEFA do have rules uh, about this kind of thing. I remember back in the 90s, I don't know if you remember this, Graham, Robbie Fowler getting a fine because he wore a T-shirt supporting the Liverpool dock workers. Um, so, you know, that that was the attitude back then. But now we know po- politics and soccer are inextricably linked. Uh, and it's been shown over the weekend in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Clubs from all around the world showing messages of support for the people of Ukraine, uh, from messages on screens at stadiums to players and fans holding tributes. Uh, we had some big news on the international stage as well. This is a moving story. This is uh, the, the details if we have them at the moment. Sweden, Poland and the Czechs have all vowed to boycott Russia uh, in playing them in World Cup qualifiers 
or otherwise. England have made a similar statement. Uh, France, Wales and Denmark have all made statements um, uh, saying they will not play Russia at any given avenue at this time. Uh, FIFA have ordered Russia not to play under their flag, similar to how they've been treated by the IOC uh, in the Olympics, of course. Um, and under, a, I'm going to read a quote here, under a series of initial measures agreed by the FIFA Council on Sunday, next month's World Cup playoff between Russia and Poland will go ahead, but at a neutral venue with no spectators. Russia will also be forced to go by the name the Football Union of Russia, the RFU. FIFA said they'll be willing to consider further actions, including expulsion from the World Cup, should the situation not be improving rapidly. Taylor, we are not a political show, but this is big uh, sports news for us. It's big world news, of course. Um, this is a disappointing reaction from FIFA not quite reading the room. Yeah, well, I, th- I understand where they're coming from, because I think you have to, like, I guess in their minds, incentivize the idea that if things de-escalate, if there is peace, uh, Lewandowski kind of said the same thing, as long as there are like active hostilities. And I think that's what they're looking towards, is maybe in a month from now, things are different, things have calmed down. But when Infantino is asked about it and doesn't really say anything of substance, that is a larger issue for me because the head of FIFA has the opportunity to say a strong statement and and kind of show solidarity. I have reasons for why he maybe wasn't able to. Uh, what he actually said instead was, we are constantly reflecting on the role of sport and in particular the role of sport and trying to bring people together in a peaceful environment, even two countries who don't have relations with each other or who are in conflict with each other. This is a constant in our thinking, and I firmly believe in sport to bring people together. Football, it, it keeps going like that. He doesn't say the name of either country. He doesn't say anything that's happening. Joe, whoever is editing, I've, I've kind of summarized here. You might have to learn how to bleep for this one. Uh, here is my, my translation of what Infantino said. What I have to say is a bunch of I can't actually say the name of either country in any way for fear I might upset anyone, but specifically Putin, whom I once praised for being awesome. He gave me a shiny medal, a really shiny medal, and you just want me to turn my back on that because he invaded some country. He and his country put on the best World Cup history has ever seen. Yes, I actually said that. So now if I act like I didn't know what he was about when I made that stupid declaration on multiple occasions, I'll immediately look like a laughingstock, and I'm only just now starting to recover from that time I kicked the ball in public and everyone realized I've never played sports before. So anyway, soccer is wonderful and it brings people together, and maybe except for, well, I almost said their name, I can't say their country name, so let me just wrap up my remarks by summarizing events as it being two countries who are in conflict with each other. No blame, Vlad. Please don't be mad at me. Please pay me money. Big T, you should work for FIFA PR. I like this. I like this side of you. (laughs) Oh, it made me mad. It made me real mad. I mean, I know he can't, like... He can't go out there and, and criticize like, the Russian team or anything like that. But there are times when you can tow the, the FIFA line or, or sort of not commit yourself to a position that could be untenable. But I think this was one where it, it sort of could have just been a more concise statement that would have uh, gone a long way. And FIFA didn't go that way. And I find that particularly frustrating. Yeah, others have made uh, some slightly bigger moves than FIFA. Uh, Schalke uh, have terminated their partnership with Gazprom, the state-sponsored natural gas supplier, uh, very much against their own interests. They had an eight-figure sponsorship deal, which they have now uh, uh, abandoned, it would appear, as of Monday's news. Uh, Schalke fans crashed their website trying to buy the shirt without the sponsor on it, though that should help things. I'm assuming Graham was uh, uh, making that traffic a little bit worse on Schalke's website. (laughs) Um, The Champions League is also reportedly trying to end its sponsorship deal with the aforementioned Gazprom as well, and uh, as we uh, probably know by this point, has moved the Champions League final from St. Petersburg. The other big news we should probably cover here is Chelsea, who made a couple of statements over the weekend. On Saturday, 
Uh, Roman Abramovich announced that he was handing stewardship and care of Chelsea to the club's foundation trustees, but will remain as owner. Uh, those trustees, they're headed by the New Yorker Bruce Buck, the club's chairman. Other trustees are Emma Hayes, the Chelsea women's manager. Uh, Piotr Power, the executive director of the anti-racism organisation FAIR. Paul Ramos, Chelsea's director of finance. The sports lawyer, John Devine. Sebastian Coe. The uh, president of World Athletics, a former Olympian, Weird. he's on that trust, yeah. And Hugh Robertson, the chairman of British Olympics and a former MP and sports minister. Um, footballing decisions, including transfers, contracts, and the future of uh, the manager, Thomas Tuchel, will be responsibility of uh, Marina Granovskaya uh, and the technical and performance director, Petr Cech, as well. Graham, the statement was light on detail, uh, but the timing of this announcement of handing over stewardship, uh, given Abramovich's links to the Kremlin, the sanctions that are being placed on Russians outside of Russia and in the UK doesn't feel entirely coincidental. No, and I, and I think it was deliberately vague on details. We we were all discussing on Twitter and amongst ourselves when that statement came out. What what does this actually mean? And as I say, I think that was a, a deliberate pl- ploy. Abramovich, I think it's fair to say, um, fears sanctions, which could then result in Chelsea ending up uh, out of his control, and he's trying to preempt that with. Uh, I guess what's a symbolic move to try and distance Chelsea from himself. And today he's reportedly in Belarus acting as a part of the negotiation team in the talks between Ukraine and Russia. So it seems uh, that he's very close. I mean, we knew this already. It's well documented. He is a, a close um, associate of Putin, but that he seems to be closer than ever, given that he is right at the, the epicentre of, of this of this war, this invasion. Yeah, he's a he's a peace broker now, but he did um he he did deny having any closeness to Putin or Russia or, or has having done anything to merit being sanctioned. So a little bit of a mental gymnastics there, Taylor. Yeah, knowing Roma, Roman Abramovich's history, is there a chance he's also there to buy Andrei Shevchenko? Because I feel like he's done that before, so maybe he's there for the negotiations, but then also just wants to see if Shevchenko is available. <laughs> well, Shevchenko lives in London, so <laughs> he's he's a, headed in the wrong direction. <laughs> Uh, Chelsea also made a statement on Sunday. The situation in Ukraine is horrific and devastating. Chelsea FC's thoughts are with everyone in Ukraine. Everyone at the club is praying for peace. Uh, didn't mention Russia in their statement at all there. Chelsea play, um, joined Liverpool at the start of the League Cup final, uh, showing a display of solidarity with Ukraine. We saw this at a few other games. We saw this at Manchester United, for example, as well. Um, questions about the appropriateness of Chelsea doing this, where considering where their wages come from, have been raised. So a few more mental contortions having to be done there. Um, Taylor, anything more you want to say on this, or should we park the politics for now and head to the sucker? Just, just that uh, I'm glad that like the footballing world uh, has responded the way it has, and I think there have been some strong stances, some stances that I would have liked to be stronger, but then just some like organic reaction. Have you all seen the video of uh, Yeremchuk subbing oh, on yeah. and the whole Wonderful. stadium applauding him, and he clearly is trying to hold it together and loses it a little bit at the end, and just... Those moments, that that to me is one of the main reasons why we love this sport is just because it does bring together. It is a second language, and you can see that on display here. Uh, I, I wish that we didn't have to start off in such such a bleak way, but at the same time, I think a lot of the world is focused on, on what's going on uh, in Ukraine right now. So I think we can uh, address that when, when it's relevant and then talk about soccer and, and try to keep spirits uh, up and lifted and all that good stuff, uh, including Leeds fans. Leeds, I, I hope that this uh, episode doesn't make you too depressed by the end. 
Hopefully not. Hopefully. Ha the lawyers have the memories of the bucket and the translator and thus uh, so on. Um, Taylor, <laughs> just a quick one on that Euromtrick video. We had a discussion last week about how old and soft we've both become. Did you cry yeah. before Euromtrick or after? Because mine was about the same time. About the same time. I was yeah. right. I was like already right there. I think I was I was I'm just waking up. I was already like a little bit emotional because I had already been reading other things. Uh, and then that did make me cry. The news that uh, Zelensky did the voice translation or the dubbing for Paddington in yes. the Ukrainian version. That brought me back to happiness. That That's what I needed. And he won Dancing with the Stars. Yeah, that makes me sad again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. At least you're on an even keel of somewhat, though, Taylor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, from the Zelensky news. <laughs> Let's move from that to Major League Soccer. Back for a 27th season with a 28th team in the mixer. More on them shortly. Uh, why don't we start off with perhaps one of the best performances of the weekend, Joe Lowry. LAFC 3, Colorado nil. Carlos Vela getting a hat-trick there. A good reminder of why he's probably the best player in the league. Man, he was on it. On Saturday, right, guys? I mean, he was everything that LAFC want him to be. He was everything that LAFC need him to be. LAFC in general in this game, I thought, were really, really good. Steve Trundolo's first game in charge of LAFC in four of their offseason signings started in this game. And Maxime Crapeau at goalkeeper, uh, Franco Escobar on the right side of defense, Kellen Acosta as one of those eights, and Ilya Sanchez as the number six LAFC kept Colorado pinned back for long stretches of this game. Their center backs uh, were, were phenomenal. Mario and Fall in this game, so athletic, so 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 mobile in how they cover ground and keep players pinned. Ilié was doing great making those reads in the middle of central midfield as that deep lying number six. They were excellent in this game. Colorado, for, for their half of this, were incredibly poor. They didn't create almost anything. They only had one true forward on the field in Jonathan Lewis. And that's something we've seen from, from Robin Frazier in the past. Last season, when they did win the Western Conference, it has worked for them at times. Instead of having real wingers or, or really anything in that front line, it was Mark Anthony Kay on, on one side of Jonathan Lewis, and it was Max Alves, a newcoming a midfielder, on the other side of him. And that front line mixed with the midfield group was was able to wasn't able to really create much in this game. And for Colorado, they lost in their two legged tie to Comunicaciones and CCL. They are out of the Concacaf Champions League, and now they get blown out in Week One of the MLS season. It is a long season. I do believe Colorado will be okay, but not the start of the year they wanted. Certainly, Graham, did you catch this one? I did. I did. And and Carlos Vela. I'm already regretting not putting him down as my MVP tip. Ryan Gold is going to have to hit a new level altogether <laughs> for that one to, to come through for me. But yeah, I, I echo everything Joe said. I, I was very impressed with what LAFC, LAFC did. They pressed well, which led to the, the penalty kick for the first goal. I thought Acosta as the eight rather than as the six. Obviously, that was a big question about him coming into the season, where he's going to play. I thought he worked well as the eight. There, there was a lot to like about what they did in the first game. Graham, one one reason why you might have not wanted to have him shortlisted for MVP is the thing that we talked about, Vela's contract being up on the contract, June 30th. Yeah. The window opens July 1st, so he could theoretically move, and that was a lot of the reporting, I guess, out of Europe suggesting that. Taylor Twelman instead has uh, said that contract negotiations are ongoing. He thinks a deal for an 18- to 24-month extension will be done in the near future. And I have to believe that starting off as strong as LAFC did, is a good way to make him feel like, you know what, life's okay, I want to hang out here and, and score some goals, win some games, let's just make that happen, let's get that extension done. And I hope he does, because this league is fun with Carlos Vela in it. It is indeed. We had a big win for Columbus, a 4-0 win over Vancouver, an even bigger win for Austin, 5-0 at home over Cincinnati. Cincinnati at bottom of the East, Joe. They're not, <laughs> they're bottom. 
Charlotte 13th. How do you like that? Huh? Tom Bogart was right about his pizza and his choices and league predictions. And then Tom's getting a lot of runtime on this show. I'm here for it. Uh, shipping those five goals was awful for Cincinnati. Alec Kahn, they bring in a new goalkeeper over the offseason who's had success in it. USL, success in MLS. He certainly did not fix it in this opening game. I, I think... I think uh, I think Austin had five shots on target and all five found the back of the net. Uh, I believe that's correct. There's, again, plenty of season left. We should avoid overreacting for, for good reasons or for bad reasons. But Cincinnati, their, their press was exposed multiple times by Austin. They pressed in the final third more than almost any other team in MLS in week one. The press was exposed. They were poor in individual defensive moments. This was a tough one for Cincinnati. Hey, Joe, really quick. Sorry, I have a, a stats question for you because I'm still kind of confused by the analytics. Um, five shots, five goals. Is that bad? Yeah, no, that that's okay. bad. And and to be fair, there yeah. were more than okay, five cool. shots for Austin. I guess that's being fair to Austin more than it is for Cincinnati. But only only a handful of them ended up on target, and uh, a lot of those found the back of the net. Man, should you do that on occasion? Don't they? Didn't they do that last week? They had like six shots and five goals or something. Ridiculous. <laughs> it's actually five shots and six goals somehow. They're just that good. <laughs> Well, let's tell you who else was good. The Red Bulls, a nice 3-1 win at San Jose for them. Uh, Graham, into Miami, nil, Chicago, nil. A debut for the Power Cube. Yeah, and and this was uh, this was the, the the game, the first game that I watched all the way through. It was Sky Sports' first live game of the new season because, well, David Beckham, I guess, in the UK. And it wasn't exactly the carnival of chaos that I hoped it, it might be. Uh, Shakiri was... I was keeping an eye on him because of my slight fascination with the Power Cube. There were some decent long-range efforts, but there wasn't all that much else, to be honest. And I think he needs to, to sharpen up a little bit. He looked a little bit rusty in some of his touches and some of his attacking output. I thought Gonzalo Higuain looked lively throughout uh, Taylor Rockwell's doppelganger. Yeah. He, <laughs> we've talked in the previews about how he was going to, he's maybe going to do more of the playmaking for Inter Miami, and that certainly uh, panned out in this performance. I think the concern is that he faded as the match went on just because he doesn't necessarily have the fitness to perform that role for 90 minutes. So that's a bit of a challenge for Inter Miami. But from the performance of those two, these two teams, it was very much the case that these are two sides that are a work in progress at the at the early stage of this season and so not a great deal of quality in the attacking third from from either of them graham am i being harsh uh does the power cube have an extra little power chin growing there <laughs> he's 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 always been like he's just bulking up for uh for uh, putting on <laughs> turning that into muscle mass yeah. in the summer that's what that's what that is. The chin is the hardest place to add mass. I, uh, exactly. I yeah, that's, exactly. That's what they say. <laughs> that's what they say. Sunday night, Taylor. We had a marquee match. LA Galaxy against MLS Cup champs NYCFC. Chicharito getting the winner for the Galaxy in the 90th minute, Taylor. He did indeed, and it was dramatic, and it was exciting. It was a marquee matchup in terms of the names and the cities. I don't think it was the sharpest of games. I do think it was a good insight into NYCFC. Will still be very good. Uh, LA Galaxy, if they can get Chicharito scoring goals, will also be good. But I think one thing I, I, I feel like I came away for, from this game thinking is that however this year goes for Julian Araujo and Raheem Edwards, the two fullbacks for the Galaxy, is how this season will go for the Galaxy. Those two, uh, Araujo in particular, were getting... So much instruction from Greg Vanny throughout this game. You could hear it uh, on the mic when they cut to him every time. He was coaching them on positioning and where they needed to be on goal kicks versus throw-ins versus set pieces. There was just so much instruction to those two. And Araujo, his distribution was a little bit erratic. Sometimes it was overhit. Sometimes it was behind. And I think as the season goes, that will sharpen. And I think he'll be really important in the way they're creating chances. But then Edwards stayed sharp and stayed physical and stayed feisty throughout this whole game. He's the one that wins the loose ball back and then plays it into Chicharito. 
Chicharito does a lot of the work himself for the winner, but it was just really not even strong, just like influential, important, involved uh, games for the the two fullbacks for the Galaxy. The player that I think also shown particularly brightly would be Douglas Costa, who I had some questions about. I wasn't sure how motivated he was going to be. I wasn't sure if this was a, I want to keep going and I want to win and win silverware everywhere, or if this was, I want to collect a paycheck and live in L.A. And on the basis of this game, he is there to play. He looked so so comfortable and confident and just tidy. He was a very tidy player in this game and I think will make LA Galaxy that much better. Yeah, they were picking him up a lot on the broadcast and rightly mm-hmm. so. It was a, a decent yeah. performance from him, Taylor. Uh, on Sunday also, Atlanta beat Kansas 3-1. 17-year-old homegrown player Caleb Wiley got the third goal in his MLS debut for Atlanta there. And Nashville began their adventure in the West with a big old win. 1-0 in the rain in Seattle. Um, speaking of that area of the country, perhaps the most entertaining game of the weekend, Graham. Portland 2, New England 2. Sebastian Legler making his New England Revolution debut and marking it with a goal, I should say, but not the best goal of the day. No. No. That, as you say, this was game of the, the opening weekend in terms of drama and entertainment and uh, if only for Yumichara's overhead bicycle kick, this was a good one and uh, I think it's a goal of the season contender right on match day one. It's, it's, it's an incredible finish. Obviously, I think it's it's a goal like that is always better when it's at home in front of a really big crowd and obviously in front of the Timbers army there, it just uh, gives it a little bit extra kind of spice and yes, very much enjoyed that finish and very much in, enjoyed this match as well. I thought it was a confirmation of what we thought these two teams would be about in the preseason previews. Basically, they're they're better at the at the front than they are at the back, but that, that made for a, a very entertaining contest too. too. The, the Jimmy Chara goal was insane, and it is the best finish of this game. Maybe a goal that I, I almost enjoyed more than that was Dyron Espria's goal in the 60th minute. It's Jimmy Chara who plays the ball to Santi Moreno, who then is, on, is inside, tucked inside, and he's on his right foot. And he plays this beautiful slipped ball in behind for Dyron Espria, who scores. And that's the equalizer for Portland to about 15 minutes into the second half. Then Jimmy Charles is the second equalizer for them after, I believe it's Leggett who had scored that second goal for New England. That pass from Santi Moreno, and really just his performance in this game, maybe less yeah, so for good. stretches of the first half, but... Man, so technical, right-footed. He doesn't always put in the most defensive work, which is in line with what Graham's talking about for these two teams. But he is incredible to watch, just as he was in the latter stages of last season, especially throughout the playoff run. If Santi Moreno is on, uh, you, you add him to Sebastian Blanco, who came off the bench in this game, still working back to full fitness. You add in Jimmy Char, who's mobile and can provide that little bit of wild cardness that he certainly had on that goal. And then maybe you have Nishkoda contributing a little bit. Man, some of the, the, the attacking players here for Portland are scary. They are. Can I can I take a second to maybe pee in uh, Jimmy Chara's cornflakes? Maybe put an egg on his pizza, Joe. <laughs> in the, the bicycle kick. Was it an unnecessary bicycle kick? I'm branding an unnecessary bicycle kick because there was no defenders within many yards no of him. Thing. He could have just <laughs> taken it down and knocked it in. Am I being a killjoy, Graham, by suggesting yes, it wasn't? Yes, there, there's no such thing as an overhead, uh, unnecessary overhead bicycle kick. Every, every action in a game should be an overhead bicycle kick, if, if possible. That's uh, the way you should approach football, in my opinion. Although, to be fair, maybe it was the most legal bicycle kick ever because he wasn't endangering any players by raising his boot, so... Maybe exactly. Thoughtful perfect. as well. It was perfect. <laughs> I've changed my opinion. I'll remove the egg from the pizza. 
Um, one other game I wanted to bring attention to, DC United nil, Charlotte FC 3. Uh, before we get into this, I shall, if you're not already aware, listener, outlay my bias on this one. I work for Charlotte FC and have done since their, um, since December 19 when the team was announced. So maybe my opinions will be, should be taken with a pinch of salt, but... Uh, this game, I was pleased with it. It was a 3-0 loss in the inaugural match, but I was pleased with it. The scoreline didn't reflect what Charlotte did, in my opinion. You can't, Joe, Joe I'm sorry, you can't watch that and tell me that Cincinnati are not worse than what we saw here That's from fair. Charlotte. That's fair. Um, where goals rolled out from TTRTs um, early on. He hit the post as well. We had a questionable penalty, a very harsh handball there. Two deflections, basically against the runner play for the other two goals for DC. A team without its DP player due to visa issues, and I understand... Um, from the team president uh, on Monday, just earlier this morning, that he's arrived back in town, so he'll be back for the next game against the Galaxy. But what I saw here, Joe, was a lot of positive play, a team that was willing to get forward, some really nice passing sequences, particularly in the second half when they settled down a bit. You know, a lot of it going, you know, some sideways passes going back to the goalkeeper, but, you know, building and trying to get forward uh, and, 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 and sort of changing the directness we saw in the first half for a bit more control in the second half, I'd say. I'd say, Joe, for a team that's only been together for a matter of weeks, I was pleased with what we see, saw here in terms of cohesiveness. There were certainly things to like, Ryan. I mean, I don't know that I'm quite as high on this performance as you are, which I think is understandable. Correct. But man, I mean, there were <laughs> there were good... I mean, I think people who are trying to say this was just a dismal performance are, are wrong, right? I mean, there was there were things to like here. The 3-0 scoreline, obviously not something you like if you're Miguel Angel Ramirez. But some of the sequences, Ryan, that you're talking about, I mean, this is what I tried to get at in my preview of this team. Ramirez is going to get this team playing some aesthetically pleasing soccer. I think there was absolutely bits and pieces of that on Saturday. They had they had real chances as well. I mean, they created a decent amount of XG in this game. They had attacking chances. There were moments where I felt like they were moving far too slowly on the ball. I tweeted out a clip from the first half, the, the nearly the end of the first half on Saturday, when it takes them a really long time to advance the ball down the wing, and even then, not a lot happens with that ball. But man, for a team that's playing without their number nine in this game in Karol Svidersky, they're playing without you know some of the other talented players that they've been trying to bring in and still have been unable to do so, especially in those wide attacking positions. There were things to like here. That penalty from Estrada is a tough one. It certainly looks like Gressel hooks Mora a little bit in the build-up to that penalty. The ref didn't think so. Then the second goal right before halftime is brutal because it's a nothing shot from Michael Estrada from outside the box. It has really no business going in. But, I mean, you shoot that a hundred times, maybe it goes in once or twice, and that's what happened for Charlotte here. So I, I thought there were certainly things to like. Mackenzie Gaines was, was pretty bright on that right side. Tito Ortiz was a much better nine than I thought he was going to be, even though I don't think that's his full-time spot for this Charlotte team. Not a great performance. They didn't completely wow me, but but some of those build-up sequences were very, very good from them. And I think they have some pieces here under Miguel, Hen- Miguel Angel Ramirez. It, it, it was cruel to disallow that Ortiz goal. Yeah. The, the, the first goal in franchise history, the big celebration, the big historic moment. And, uh, oh, we're going to disallow that using VAR. That that was cruel. I, I did think, feel slightly um, sorry for Charlotte in that moment. It did show, I think there's around 400 Charlotte fans who've made the trip, Graham. And I think getting a lot of feedback from the people at the stadium, I think Pablo Mora was there as well, saying how it was like the best 
away travel they'd ever seen at the yeah. stadium. So that gives me hope for for home games as well. And it's um, uh, reports from on Monday saying that the stadium's all but sold out. They're going to have a couple of tickets um, here and there for walk-ins on on Saturday coming. So that's really encouraging as well. But Taylor, uh, this Charlotte team, 53% possession ended in this game. Same amount of shots as DC. Of uh-huh. the eight teams that have joined MLS since 2016, only LAFC have taken points from their inaugural match. I'm uh-huh. still slightly buoyant. Are you about to um, stick a needle in my yes, point yes, yes. No, I mean, not really. It's just like, dude, you're saying I should go work for FIFA PR. You're doing, <laughs> you're doing a pretty pretty decent job spinning this 3-0 loss. <laughs> like, like, the way you're talking about it is as though they were playing like Man City. And though they lost 3-0. All right, 3-0, hang on, Taylor, they... <laughs> Taylor. If you're a DC fan, would you be yeah. impressed with that win? Uh, I, no, but I'm rarely impressed by what DC do. I, like, there's always that grain of like, was that good? I don't know. That's kind of the DC brand. I think, I understand where you're coming from, and I think you can credit the players for what they did, for the coach for doing what he could do, but there's a little bit of, like, the team sort of shot itself in the foot, and then you're praising them for playing through the pain. Like, there's so many issues that maybe could have been dealt with in better ways that wouldn't have led to them being in this situation, but they are. And you're right, it it could have been worse, it certainly could have been worse, but I also, I think, I don't know how strong this DC United team is going to be. As Joe said, some of these opportunities, some of these chances are potentially like just very beneficial opportunities that weren't necessarily great team play. And so I then see it as like, if this is a questionable DC team who might be in the playoffs, might not be, and they're winning three nil. I don't know if I would be so psyched yet. I guess last weekend or next weekend, we'll give you a good indicator against a galaxy team who seem like they will be up for it. Uh, But I think there are reasons for optimism for you. I think there are certainly reasons for optimism for DC fans as well. I think Estrada getting the brace and getting lots of kicks. I think he got treatment twice in the first half while getting two goals in the first half as well. That was a very nice introduction to Major League Soccer for him. And for me, seeing how Brad Smith and Andy Nahar just power that DC United team, Andy Nahar in the lead-up to the goal, I think stops like five different Charlotte clearances. He wins everything. He fights for everything. He's all over the place. Brad Smith has that same engine. I think he starts the move that leads to that second goal. And I thought was really involved in the attack. Very good defensively. I think those two are going to be so important to what DC want to do. I'm all about fullbacks this weekend, it seems. Yeah. Um, Joe, I'm wondering if Ramirez is going to be a manager who's going to surprise us this season. I mean... (laughs) Um, let me, hear me out, hear me out on my point. I mean, no, it's, it's, just, it's just that everything I've just said about DC, you're like, uh-huh, let's talk about if Charlotte's manager yeah, is going to win coach We're not here to PR DC, okay, Taylor? We're here to talk about Charlotte FC. No, I'm, I'm joking, <laughs> I'm joking. But I want to make my point about Ramirez here, because they're, they're the new team, Taylor, they're the new team in this league. I'd uh-huh, like to say a few uh-huh. things about it. Um, you know, we, we've, we know about his, uh, his system, Joe, about possession, about patient build-up, about this attack and release with pace, you know, elements of Spanish tiki-taka, bit of Ranieri's, Leicester, and so on and so forth. But... I, we've seen several different formations throughout preseason. It was a 3-4-2-1, I think, in this one, same as DC. Um, I, I, there were players here starting. I was surprised that I didn't think was start. Christian Fuchs, for example, I wasn't sure he was going to play a lot. He was captain, and he was one of the classiest yeah, players on good. the field here. He was re- helping out at the back a lot. When they, That was one of the, the negative sides I saw for Charlotte was they, they got stuck trying to get out of the back quite a lot. Um, but he had a few headers on goal as well. He was useful going forward. Loads of decent long balls. Um, uh, they had that if you they had Chris Hegart and uh, Ben Bender, the kids out of college who played in this one. Sergio Ruiz, who I thought would be the star of this team, uh, didn't come off the bench. Uh, Brant Bronico, the uh, Chicago fireman, uh, got a start instead. And he was great. He, I, I actually texted him yesterday. He was a bit gutted. He gave away the, the handball for the penalty. But um, I think that was 
unwarranted. But hey, once again, I'm very, very biased. But to get back to my original question, uh, Joe, it seems like uh, Ramirez is going to throw some curveballs through this season. Maybe not necessarily because he has a choice at, at points. I think a lot of the curveballs we might see from Ramirez will be shape related, right? This this five four one, whatever you want to call it, you said a three four two one. It is that in certain phases, it is a five four one in other phases. This, to my knowledge, wasn't the shape that Miguel and, and Ramirez was trying to play. I'm just going to say Mar from now on. M A R. That's that's what I'm going to do. I don't think this was the shape that he was looking to play in in game one in match day one. But because of some of the challenges that they had in preseason, I think adding a little bit of extra defensive presence helps this team get more stable. And I know that's a silly thing to say after losing 3-0, but again, those goals are, are fluky, and I don't know that we're always going to see those find the back of the net. So I, I think we'll see some some more 5-4-1. I think we'll see some 4-3-3 at certain points this season. This roster is not done either. I would be very surprised if there wasn't some more movement before the end of this season. So yeah, I mean, there's going to be curveballs. The one thing that I do think will remain the same is a lot of the principles of play that Charlotte's trying to use. And you detailed those pretty well in the intro to that question, Ryan. So I, I enjoyed, again, things that I saw from the Charlotte team. I, I always enjoy, I don't always enjoy the fact that there's an infinite number, seemingly, of teams in Major League Soccer. But it's always fun when a new one comes into the league that we get to digest and try to learn more about. And that's what we're in the process of doing right now with Charlotte FC. Indeed, yeah. And uh, LA Galaxy coming up uh, in Charlotte next weekend. And then the weekend after that, Atlanta away. So a baptism of fire for Charlotte, certainly with those next two games coming up. I'm going to be at both of them, actually. And just to get a bit sentimental about it, as I say, I, I lived in Charlotte for 10 years. I'm going to live there again. It's my, my favorite place in the world. I am absolutely delighted it has a team. And it really it, it is. This, this team resonates with me. I know they're not going to set the league light necessarily, but um, the most important thing and the thing they've said all along and people like Steve Walsh, who works with the team as a scout, who was a guy who discovered half the Leicester team that won the league. His main thing is they want this team to be competitive. And from what I saw in that game, Graham, they were competitive. Yeah, in <laughs> parts. <laughs> the way I summed it up was a good start, good end, bit in the middle, uh, slightly questionable, but I, I um yeah I, I was actually I was actually going to go down a, a different route with what I was going to ask you Ryan with was in terms of like your your pride of seeing a Charlotte team in MLS do you, did you feel that at the weekend or do you think that will come with the home game when there's seventy thousand people in um in the stadium for that one I absolutely can't wait for that home game I think it's going to be a hairs on the back of your neck situation and I will say Graham this game started midnight local time for me. I, I was thinking, I'm not going to stay at the whole thing. And I did because I was so excited about it. I haven't been this excited about a game in years. And that probably part of that comes from the fact that I support Wimbledon, who most games are trying to avoid relegation. So it's a, sort of a different Won't be a problem here. <laughs> yeah, no relegation here. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to be fine in that respect. But yeah, I, 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 I do feel the pride in it. And I'm, I've been quite close to this team, as I say. And I'm, uh, you know... I think it's a really good thing, and it's, I'm, I'm sounding cheesy in PR, but it's good for the community in Charlotte as well because they wanted a team for, for a very long time in MLS. So I'm very, very happy about that as well. Before we park MLS, guys, um, you did some excellent, excellent season predictions. Um, Taylor, have you wanted to revise any of your preseason predictions based on week one? This is the way too early revision question. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I was mildly optimistic about things with Cincinnati. So, yeah, not feeling great about that one. Uh, but, you know, Vasquez can still score, score some goals. It doesn't mean that things are, are totally bleak. Uh, overall, I'm feeling okay. Uh, no, no horrific ones so far. We'll see how long I continue to feel like that. Joseph? 
Yeah, I'm feeling good, guys. I'm, I'm scrolling through my predictions right now, and I did this again earlier this morning. I, I like a lot of what I did here. I reserve the right to change now that we're doing this, I guess, throughout this season. I reserve the right to change them at any point, but for now, I'm, I'm staying put. Even that Eastern Conference finishing? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, well, we can talk about that later. Graham, how about you? Uh, Shakiri, I thought maybe he, he might start the season hot. I mean, it's, it's the first game. That's the first thing to say, but... I, th- I thought he might actually start the season well, um, given that he was mid-season and he should theoretically be fitter than his a lot of his teammates. And I didn't see that in his in his first game of the MLS season. So m- maybe I'm uh, down a little bit on my prediction on Shakiri scoring so many goals this season. Wait. But the, the, there's a, it's still a long way to go. So maybe he warms up. <laughs> there is indeed. I'll tell you, why don't we check back on your predictions every single week so we can see uh, the the, uh, the rise and fall of them, gents. That'll be fun for everybody. Please won't not. It? <laughs> can, I, can I add one more thing as well? I know we, we've gone so long without going to a break. I just want to say maybe this is my bias here and what I usually watch. I thought this was a great opening weekend for MLS. I thought the games were really, really good, compelling, if not always of the highest quality, which is something that I think MLS should be shooting for if they're not going to have the most talent in the world make these games entertaining. You had plenty of goals. Columbus getting four over Vancouver, Austin getting five over Cincy, LAFC getting three over uh, over Colorado. There's talent on the field. We're seeing teams start to gel. I thought this was a hugely enjoyable, entertaining weekend of MLS, even if it's weird at the first game, which is also a good one against the Union, uh, between the Union and Minnesota United, even if that one was at a weird time on a Saturday without much fanfare. I I think the scheduling there is strange to me, but man, I I enjoyed so much of this opening weekend. I think there's an element, Joe, of this being maybe the first normal season in a while for the fans as well, getting excited that things might be okay. Closer to that, Yeah. yeah, yeah. Excellent stuff. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break, a long overdue break. When we come back, the League Cup final. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. League Cup final, gents. A brilliant cup final this was as well. Chelsea nil, Liverpool nil. Liverpool winning 10-11 on penalties. Their first domestic cup win since 2012. Uh, Kepa was subbed on for Edouard Mendy uh, for penalties. He ended up failing to save 11 of them and missed his own. Uh, Graham, a very, very entertaining game here. I think probably one of the best cup finals I can remember, despite it being nil-nil. We had loads of chances, mostly for Mason Mount. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a few offside goals, some dubious ones at that, certainly one for Romelu Lukaku. What do you make of this one, Graham? I thought it was probably the best nil-nil of all time. Right. Um, especially for one that was played over 120 minutes. Normally, by the time you get to full time on, on, a, on a goalless draw, I'm... I'm not wanting extra time. I'm just wanting to penalties. But 
this was a this was an entertaining one. Four disallowed goals. One that I personally thought should have should have stood, and I'm not terribly uh, sure how it didn't. Mount hits the post. Pulisic misses a, a sitter. It was a pretty enthralling display of attacking football from both teams, and it was something of an anomaly that it ended goalless. Um, Opta had the expected goals as 1.84 for Chelsea and 2.41 for Liverpool. So this that kind of tells you that that. And on an, any other day, there probably would have been goals in this one. And ironically, after some poor finishing during the match, you then have a, a clinical penalty shootout in which both teams score all 20 penalties before, as you say, Ryan, Kepa brought on to win the shootout, then smashes his kick over, over the bar. So, yeah, as you say, very entertaining. And I, I thought it was an important match for Liverpool. I mean, it's a cup final, so obviously it's important for, for both teams. But I mean for the... The legacy of Klopp and this Liverpool team, I thought this was important. Klopp has spoken about the need for this team to win more, win more trophies, he means. And and I think he's right. You know, this Liverpool team have been incredible for a number of years and they've won the Premier League title and they've won the Champions League title. They've made a Champions League final as well. They finished second. They've been right up there as one of the top three teams in Europe for multiple seasons now. But the great teams, they win more. And even when it's trophies like this one, which... You know, I'm, I'm not trying to do the Carabao Cup down, but it's not up to the standard of the Premier League title, the Champions League title. I still think it's important that Liverpool just start collecting silverware and start adding titles to it so that when this is all over, and sorry, Liverpool fans, that's just how football works. It works in cycles. This will end at some point. They can look back at all the titles they've won and say, well, that that validates us as one of the, the best English teams of all time or certainly of the Premier League era. So I thought it was slightly more important for them than it was for Chelsea. Indeed. Uh, Taylor, to get back to Chelsea and Kepa, uh, the situation with him being substituted on, uh, to quote Daniel Story on Twitter, substituting off the best goalkeeper in the world who won a major international tournament on penalties literally this month for a goalkeeper who somehow saved minus one penalties is incredible. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, is there an issue with what uh, with what Tuchel did here? Because this technique worked in the uh, uh, the Super Cup against Villarreal. Uh, he saved two penalties to Kepper in that one. And uh, uh, Gear Jordet on Twitter, I found some stats here. Penalty takers have scored 94% of their shots against Monday, 32 goals on 32 attempts. So substituting on Kepper, 71%, 17 goals on 24 attempts, was a logical choice despite uh, his uh, uh, shortcomings in this game. Taylor, what did you make of that move? Yeah, I don't really have any issue with it. It's the third time he's been involved in a shootout this season for Chelsea, and the one you mentioned against Villarreal, he subbed on, as he did in this game. So I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think it, it's meant, my, my assumption is that it, it's just meant to give the new goalkeeper confidence. If Mendy's played the entire game, maybe he has that confidence, maybe he has that belief, but I think you want your goalkeeper just really feeling themselves when they come into that game and to sub him on and, and kind of create this like, ooh, they're bringing on their penalty specialist. Like I can see how it would create the atmosphere, the energy you want. And Keppa was was doing everything that he could do. He was bouncing on the penalty spot. He was dancing all around for Virgil van Dijk's take. He stood basically where Van Dyke was going to shoot and then dove the correct direction. Van Dyke still scored somehow. So I thought there was some good gamesmanship from Kepa, and I thought it made sense. It's worked in other games. It just didn't work today. But I also felt like we knew Kepa was going to be the kind of scapegoat if things didn't go well, and here we are with him missing his penalty. I think like it was set for Lukaku to be that player briefly. If he had missed his penalty, that would have been the talking point. Timo Werner almost misses his. Uh, Keller gets a hand to it, and I felt like that was going to be the talking point. So I think we were just waiting for which mildly to somewhat disappointing Chelsea player is going to be responsible for this loss. And it was Kepa in the end. A busy penalty diagram for you to draw for this one, Taylor. 
Yeah, man. Yeah. It was a lot. There was a lot to it. I mentioned the one about uh, about Kepa kind of standing off to the side. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, some other ones that I thought were particularly impressive. James Milner starting it off and having to wait there, and Kepa's bouncing on the penalty spot. Milner just standing at the D. Then the goalkeepers get talked to by the ref, and he's just waiting and waiting and then calmly finishes. Fabinho with the Panenka. When that goes in in that situation, Pirlo did it for Italy. It's, it feels like just a backbreaker because it's just so confident and disrespectful in the exact same moment. I thought that was really impressive. And I thought most of Liverpool's takes were impressive. Obviously, they scored all of them. So very impressive, I should say. But they were definitely about placement and power. Uh, Chelsea definitely tried to read Kelleher a lot. And after the, I think Lukaku and Havertz are both clearly just reading him and waiting for him to commit, and then they pass it to the other direction. And from then on, he is desperately trying not to move. You can see he's just standing there central, not trying to give anything away. But every single time when the taker is about halfway through their run-up, they would stutter, and he would shift to one side, and then they would pass to the other. And he did sort of give it away every time, and I think that's why Chelsea had some joy with the reading, stuttering, and then passing it to the other side. And that ended with the goalkeepers both getting to take. And for Kelleher, he hits a pretty much perfect penalty. It's got power. It's got placement. And it really does just lump all the pressure onto Kepa, who fires it over, as you said in the introduction, that shot is maybe still rising. But I don't think either one necessarily covered themselves in glory. Kepa only gets correctly four times, four out of 11, two out of the first five. So I'm guessing they did some studying for the, the primary takers. But Kelleher, for his part, only guessed correctly on four out of 10. I'm not counting the final miss. He still dove kind of the wrong direction, but that miss was just so bad that I'm not sure that one warrants mentioning. So it's not like either one necessarily had a great shootout, although Kelleher definitely had the better because he finished his and Kepa did not. I was so pleased that we got to goalkeepers taking oh, yep. a penalty yep. because once you get to nine and 10, I'm thinking nobody dare miss a penalty. Yep. By this point, I want goalkeepers taking penalties and then I want managers taking penalties. That's my uh, proposal to change the IFAB rules is after you have the goalkeeper, you have the manager after them. They're the 12th penalty. It's takers. actually, it's like actually goalkeeper, translator, then manager. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Graham. I this is an example of Ryan doesn't know the rules of soccer, but I think did I learn that if a player is sent off in a game and it gets to that stage, then the team with ten players has to forfeit because you have to all do the same order of players. That can't be right, can it? Because then I, I, the, one team would take the goalkeeper and the other would go round to first taker again. Is that how it will go? I genuinely don't know. Yeah. That is a, a wrinkle in the rules that I have uh, not ironed out. Sounds like really I've, I've just submitted a listener question for ourselves there, gents. Maybe <laughs> we should get to that at some point. Um, but this one was a really interesting shootout. This is one of the games where my daughter was the most engaged watching it with me. I was like, look, watch what Kepa's doing. He's coming you know, three yards off his line. He's putting, making himself big. Jorginho's going to do a jump here. She was really into it. I was excited watching this with my daughter. Um, Joe, what did you make of... Uh, let's talk about the actual game before the penalties. Why were there not more goals? <laughs> this game, I was thinking about this earlier this morning before we started recording. This game had that unique combination of so many goals being called back. So narrow, narrow offside or rule infractions. I mean, you think about the, the Van Dyke screen that Liverpool nearly score off of. That's, that's ruled back. That goal's ruled back because he's in an offside position when he has that impactful action. But it had those, those goals being disallowed. And it also had a lot of shots that were just extremely close to going in but didn't. And I know that's not a profound statement, but a lot of times you'll have players shooting from, from good shooting positions that shots will naturally go wide of the target or naturally will be easily saved by the opposing goalkeeper. Those are things that happen to every professional player. They happen to Messi. They happen to whoever. 
at some point. But man, this game had shots hitting off the bar, shots hitting off the wood. I mean, this this had almost everything but the ball being in the back of the net. Good quality chances. Chelsea, I thought, were really dangerous in attacking transition for Liverpool. Christian Pulisic, again, I thought had a good performance. It's good to see him rounding back into form for club and ideally for the U.S. men's national team that will translate at the end of March. But he was really, really good. Mason Mount was driving ball, driving the ball forward. Kai Havertz was a pretty decent attacking outlet. And then you get some good stuff out of, out of Lukaku and Werner when they come off the bench later on in this game. For Liverpool's side of things... Man, every time I watch Luis Diaz, I really enjoy watching him. He starts on the left wing for Jurgen Klopp in this game. Sadio Mane and Mo Salah round out that front three. Not too shabby at all in this game for Liverpool. They controlled most of the possession. They used their number eights, Keita and Henderson, at least at the start of this one, to press up against Chelsea's double pivot of Conte and Kovacic. They were able to discourage those players, at least at times, from having the ball. And they had chances. I mean, Naby Keita long shot. Uh, Sadio Mane follows, and Mundy makes a, a great double save in the 31st minute. Salah gets in behind in the 64th. There's a goal called off, as I already mentioned. Van Dijk has a great header in the 91st minute that's saved by Mundy. There's so many chances in this game. You don't see this game play out many times where it stays nil-nil, but that's exactly what happened. And I would argue that it almost made this thing more entertaining because of how darn good that penalty kick shootout was. If somebody had scored, we wouldn't have gotten that. Indeed. Uh, Graham, um, Joe mentioned Luis Diaz there. It's, he, was, he was brilliant, and he has been brilliant for Liverpool so far. How, do you, how does you explain him settling so well into his Liverpool team when other players seem to you know, need a bedding in period? He's just gone in like lightning there, hasn't he? He has, and I, I can't believe how quickly he has settled. It's, I think it's a sign of, of the good work Liverpool do on the recruitment side. You mentioned some players take a little bit of time to settle into that team. Fabinho is maybe, Andy Robertson took a little bit of time actually to get used to that team, but that that was right at the, the start of the kind of Klopp era, or not at the start, but it was still the early stages of the Klopp era. So maybe that structure is just so well-formed now that they're just adding players that that can hit the ground running. Last season, obviously, Diego Jota hit the ground running in, in a similar way as well. And, he, and Diaz was just, he was just so good in this game. I really liked the partnership between him and Mane, and, and I think that opens up some interesting possibilities for, for Liverpool, having those two, you know, sometimes Diaz is on the left and Mane's through the centre. Sometimes Mane is drifting out to the left to be with Diaz. And they were they were sometimes uh, in tandem going at uh, Trevor Shalaba, who Liverpool seemed to identify as the weak link in that, that Chelsea back Kate line. Yeah, so sometimes, uh, you know, th- those two were over on the left and Salah had so much space. Sometimes Diaz is in the centre and Manny's out left. It just added, It just adds to the sense that Liverpool have this fluid front line that is difficult to track and difficult for opposition defenders to keep an eye on. And if you look at their front line now, it used to be the case that kind of throwing this to the Premier League title race, which is obviously still developing this season, but it used to be the case that City, one of their advantages over Liverpool was their strength and depth in those attacking areas. I don't think you can say that now. Liverpool have five elite level options across that front front line with Diaz and Jota and then the usual front three. Mm. And they all know their roles and responsibilities when they're on the pitch. And I just think that's a good sign of, um, a sign of good recruitment and a sign of good coaching as well. And Graham, uh, Thiago not making this one injured in the pre-match warm-up. It was a bit, um, pan- it was sad to see him crying uh, in tears before the game because I, th- I think it made Liverpool fans nervous. Is he upset because he really loves the League Cup or because this is a bit more serious <laughs> than he's letting on? Yeah, well, no one loves the League Cup that much. But I, I think, um, I mean, I don't want to read too much into it because I-, I don't, the answer is I truly don't know why he was why he was in tears. But if I had to guess, maybe... 
just the I think we maybe underestimate the significance to even an experienced player like Thiago of playing in a cup final at Wembley. You know, Wembley is such a spiritual home of of, of football in Europe, and even for someone like him, he I don't think he's done that before. So, um, yeah, it was I think it was probably disappointment on missing out on that. But the way that Joe mentioned it there, the way that Keita and Henderson were pressing up on Chelsea and Liverpool were overwhelming their midfield two of Kovacic and Kante, it kind of made me wonder what Liverpool's game plan would have been with Thiago starting and in, in, in place of uh, Keita, Naby Keita I think came into that team because it, it just felt like having that energy and that high press in there it just gave Liverpool the advantage and Thiago is capable of a high press but he's someone who is more a more controlling figure in the centre of the pitch so it might have been an entirely different match had, had he started and I think it's impressive that Liverpool were so quickly able to adapt their, their game plan when it became apparent that he couldn't play. Taylor, a quick note on the officiating in this game. Uh, was it heavy-handed? What do you think of Lukaku's, uh, what, the VAR decision that went against him that seemed very, very tight? It did. It's it, like, because we're taught, you know, they're supposed to wait to put the flag up. I guess because it goes in the back of the net, then you're putting the flag up as soon as it does to indicate I saw it as offside, and then you're getting that kind of first decision. It can go to VAR after that. Uh, so I, I, I think that's a good example of one where I thought, oh, that seems really weird. That seems like they got it wrong. And then you think about it, you watch the replays, and it slowly makes a little bit more sense. Graham, was the one that you were still confused by the Liverpool disallowed goal? No, it was it was the Lukaku one, actually. Okay. I'll, I'll explain why... I have an issue with that one. So I understand that there's a there's a perspective issue in terms of the the, the camera. So there's one angle in particular that you look at Lukaku and I, and I can't remember who the Liverpool defender is. Is it is it Van Dijk? Um, I can't remember who it is, but it looks like Lukaku's just well on side. His feet are certainly behind the Liverpool defenders. But then you've got to factor in perspective. Then you've got to factor in where his arm is. But they just dr- arbitrarily dr- draw a line up to his up to his arm from a distance on a camera that isn't in line with him. So I don't understand why we have to take into consideration, well, you know, it's, it's there's a perspective issue here. But then, yeah, we'll actually just draw a line on that anyway to try and prove our point. It's, it's I, I tweeted, it's, it's faux scientific. It's like trying to make out that there's a scientific process and actually there's not at all. It's just a camera angle that someone's drawn a line on. So to me, he looked on side, but I, I, it's more the process that angered me. I think... I think I think it was Konate, by the way. But I, I, I think where I'm more okay with it is because my assumption is that the way the AR does it is they're they're trying to keep the line as good, as well as they can. They're trying to be right there with that that like furthest back defender, and then they're listening to the sound of the ball being kicked while looking down that line. And I'm guessing that he saw maybe Lukaku, or, or that's what the human eye saw was Lukaku a fraction of an inch or a little bit offside, and that's what they went with. But if that's his initial inclination i'm guessing var if it seems really difficult to read goes with that choice so maybe there is some wiggle room there but i think overall i don't have much of an issue with the way this game is called i think there could have been some challenges that were more harshly punished like denabi keita but i i think at the end of the day it's a cup final they, they let some things go the one with keita it's to the leg it could have been bad but at the same time it, I, it didn't feel like he was trying to break a leg he was trying to cause injury or trying to cause harm so I think overall, I don't have uh, too many issues with the way this one played out. Excellent stuff. Um, the highlight of the game, many highlights in this game, Taylor, but surely the highlight, Jurgen Klopp dancing with the trophy at the end. Did you catch that? I did not, but oh, I- I'll glorious. take it. I imagine he was pretty happy. 
He was almost like I don't, it was like Colton from the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, sort of <laughs> dancing with the trophy. It was it was wonderful. <laughs> it was wonderful stuff. Imagine if these two teams get drawn in in the Champions League or, or, or the FA Cup. It's going to be very very exciting stuff. I look forward to that if that happens, uh, gents. We've been running long on this pod, but we've got plenty to cover after this quick break, including Bielsa and Jesse Marsh chat. Back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven US based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back. A quick news update as we are recording, according to BBC Breaking News, FIFA are to suspend Russia as IOC calls for bans across all sports. Russia and the Belarusian athletes are going to be banned from participating in any international sport. That's breaking news as we record, which you'll no doubt know a little more about than we do at this present time of recording. Um, why don't we head to the Premier League real quick, gents. Tottenham uh, completed a very spursy week of beating Man City, losing to Burnley, and then a big 4-0 win over Leeds. Uh, Harry Kane's long-range pass for Sun's fourth goal was majestic. Graham, this wasn't the headline that we will take away from this game, though that happened on Sunday. Marcelo, Biel- Marcelo Bielsa relieved of his duties, excuse me, on Sunday. Uh, Leeds have conceded 60 goals and they have one point from the last possible wow. 18. Uh, yeah, not great, huh? No, and um, the final couple of weeks of Bielsa at Leeds, it reminded me very much of the final days of, of Pochettino at Spurs, where the fans and the club itself didn't really want it to, to happen, didn't really want it to come to an end, but it became kind of an unavoidable situation. And um, yeah, this defeat to Spurs, where Leeds are just conceding goals for fun. As you say, 60 goals conceded in the Premier League this season, uh, which is more than any other team, quite a bit more than any other team, I believe. I think the next one's fifty-five. Mm. Um, so they ju- they just need to they need someone else to steer them away from danger because I think it was pretty much certain that if Bielsa stayed there, they were they were getting relegated. They are they are in real trouble, particularly with the, the teams around them in resurgent form at the moment. Yeah, it seems a shame because he is very beloved at Leeds, as he is at many of his other previous clubs. Uh, a very a gentle firing, maybe I would call that for yeah. for Bielsa. Um, Taylor Jesse Marsh has been linked with the job, and uh, as as it stands, um, there there are some sources saying that he's lined up on and agreed a deal in principle. Can you explain, Taylor? For uh, pretend I'm dumb, which I am. Um, what will Jesse Marsh do that Bielsa doesn't do? Because on the surface, is this not like replacing like Coke Zero with Pepsi Max a little bit? <laughs> um, I, yeah, I'm trying to think of a good analogy for that one, and I and I struggle to find one because I I see what you mean that there there are similarities to their style, but I think there are key differences. I was listening to a Leeds podcast, and one of the things they were talking about about why they're more okay with Jesse Marsh than some of the other hires that have been rumored, which is pretty much just Sam Allardyce and. 
that's pretty obvious why they wouldn't want Sam Allardyce. But the the thing that this guy was talking about was the idea that there is versatility to the way Jesse Marsh sets his teams up, that there's going to be pressing, there's going to be high intensity, there's going to be vertical passing and trying to kind of hit teams in transition as quickly as possible. But Marsh is capable of playing different systems, different styles, and capable of adjusting his team so that they have the same philosophy, the same idea for how to play, but also incorporate the opposition's particular strengths and weaknesses. And that wasn't necessarily a thing Marcelo Bielsa was doing. It was sort of the same formation, the same approach. And once teams figured them out, or once teams were capable of playing against that, they sometimes lose games pretty massively. And and some of those games would be games that they were previously winning until teams found them out. So I think Marsh is expected to give them just a bit more variety to what they're doing, but also have some of those same ideas, same instincts that maybe keep enough of things going in the same direction that you're not having this massive change. You're not having to have everybody do different things. And I personally feel like we go back to the clips of uh, Marsh managing Salzburg in the Champions League. Bielsa is is a incredibly respected manager, a beloved manager, but I think for players, he can be really challenging. He doesn't seem to be the most friendly he, he's very standoffish he doesn't he's I think he's one of those managers that feels like the locker room is the player's realm and he's not meant to be in there involving himself and I do wonder if in a relegation fight a person like Jesse Marsh who is going to be that sort of team leader the the high energy guy if that will make a difference I think I agree with everything Graham said that it feels weird to be talking about this because I really like Marcelo Bielsa I liked him at Leeds seems like everybody did I would the other comparison I would make is to Ranieri at Leicester when they win the title and then the next season he gets sacked and there's this feeling of, here's this guy who won us the title, here's this guy who got us promoted if you're Leeds, but things aren't working, so we got to try to change it up, we got to try to figure some things out. For Leicester, that has worked out in the long run. Uh, remains to be seen if it will for Leeds, it's a big gamble for them, it's a big gamble for Jesse Marsh, because if this doesn't go well, he's 0 for 2 in one season and that mm-hmm. is not a great look for him. So lots on the line, but I think there are some reasons for positivity. For me, the biggest reason why Leeds fans should expect something different is because Jesse Marsh and Bielsa play very differently. They have a lot of similar principles, but the biggest thing is Jesse Marsh doesn't man mark, right? I mean, that's a lot of the issues for Marcelo Bielsa. He has players pulled all over the field consistently almost every single game, and that leaves giant gaps. It focuses on individual 1v1 moments, and Marsh has elements of that in coordinated team-wide moves. So so they still want their players, Marsh wants his players to be better in 1v1s, defensively especially, you think about those pressing moments, but they move as a unit. Jesse Marsh describes his defensive structure as a net. Marcel Bielsa's defensive structure, as entertaining as it is, it's just a giant hole, right? I mean, that's that's what really we see from Marcel Bielsa's Leeds team. So that's a reason why fans of Leeds should expect something different is because they are inherently different in how they approach soccer. That's one thing. The other thing, I'm excited about Jesse Marsh potentially taking this job. It seems like things are headed in that direction. I don't love the timing of this happening. This feels like a challenging situation for any manager, not just Jesse Marsh, who's coming off of a of, of getting fired from RB Leipzig. I mean, Leeds are not that far out of the relegation zone, right? I mean, they have a couple of games in hand on Burnley, who's two spots below them, Leeds in 16th, Burnley in 18th as we're recording. They have two games in hand, in, in hand Leeds does, but they only have two points of, uh, ahead of Leeds, I mean, ahead of Burnley, excuse me. They're not home free, and I think this is a challenging moment for Marsh to come in, try to establish how he wants to play, to, to tweak some of Bielsa's principles and completely throw out others and add his own into those missing gaps. That's a challenge for Jesse Marsh, and I think this could go very poorly for him, 
given how close leads are to being relegated, this could also all turn out to be fine and these concerns might turn out to be unfounded. But I don't love the timing here for Marsh. It puts a lot of pressure on him, which maybe is what he's looking for. For, for any Leeds fans listening who want a, a really good visual idea of Marsh's um the way he likes to play football. There's a really good coach's voice video. He did a webinar when he was at Salzburg a couple of years ago. And that thing you're talking about, Joe, the, the kind of unity and moving the, the team across the pitch all in one, that he highlights that. And it, it's really interesting. So if any Leeds fans want some um, more information on that, I think coach's voice actually tweeted it out today or yesterday. Um, so you should go and seek that out. And hopefully we won't be getting leaks in uh, the coming weeks from the team that they have a certain nickname for him for a certain Apple TV uh, protagonist, as we've seen leaked from other teams with American coaches in this league. Speaking of Taylor, Man United nil, Watford nil. Uh, Ronaldo and Bruno uh, shaking their heads at full time after this Mm -hmm. one because they somehow didn't win it uh, against the side with one league win since November. Fans booing at Old Trafford. Yay, Taylor? I mean, you know, it's still still great. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this season, <laughs> like at this point, at, when they bring in Rangnick, I think for me it, it was them saying, yep, this is us hitting reset, and if we finish top four, that's great, but the goal for this season is to figure out how to get the team playing some semblance of organized football, and then we'll figure it out in the offseason what we want to do with a permanent manager, and I think that's kind of where they are. I, they are st- they're still creating chances. They're not taking those chances. They're still getting clean cheats on occasion, but they're not taking advantage of it when they do that. There's still major issues around personnel, and I think there's some major issues that need to be resolved, specifically about Ronaldo and how he fits in, about how coachable Bruno and Pogba have proven, and how you kind of get them playing the best football they can be. Marcus Rashford continues to be in a downturn of form. So I think there's tons of issues that maybe a an, an impermanent manager with uh, not a massive amount of authority isn't necessarily going to turn things around right away. Ha oh boy. Okay. Yep. Everton yep. nil, Man City won. Uh, Graham, it seemed like Everton might have been good for a point in this one. Phil Foden getting a goal late on. Yeah, the general theme of this one was I think City got a... Uh... A little bit lucky. I'm not entirely sure their performance warranted all three points. I thought the, the Everton midfield unit of Decore, Allen and uh, Van de Beek, they did as good a job as you can expect against Manchester City. There was a lot of energy. Van de Beek was, was a pest all over the pitch. He's getting up and down the pitch well, providing a lot of uh, energy, use that word again. And then the big moment um, towards the end of the match, the one that has provided the most discussion is the, the non-penalty call. And uh, I don't know. I I am not terribly interested in the in the kind of was it what uh, was it a penalty or not discussion. But I do think IFAB has created a real mess with this this distinction of handball and that not handball and the line on the t-shirt. And uh, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous at this point. I think most people accepted this one probably should have been a penalty. So all in all, City getting a little bit fortunate. Elsewhere in the Premier League, Christine Eriksen returning to the field nine months after cardiac arrest uh, a year of 2020. One twenty twenty. That's what it was. Uh, so <laughs> he made a substitute appearance uh, at Brentford as they lost 2-0 to Newcastle. Brighton were beaten 2-0 by Villa. Matty Cash scoring and got booked for showing a T-shirt showing support for Ukraine by referee John Brooks. Not in the spirit of things of the weekend, I would suggest. Uh, let's quickly rattle through to finish off some of the other results from around the continent, starting with the Bundesliga. The sky is still blue, water still wet, and Bayern Munich is still top of the Bundesliga with a 1-0 win over Eintracht Frankfurt via Leroy Sané. 
Uh, on Sunday, Augsburg won, Borussia Dortmund won, Taylor. Dortmund did not bounce back from their midweek Europa League defeat to Glasgow Rangers. Uh, the gap is now opened up to eight points at the top. Uh... Ha, Ricardo Pepe, Pe- Pe- excuse me, uh-huh. Ricardo Pepe playing in this one, Taylor, though, 50, uh, coming off after 58 minutes. Yeah, he did. I was sad to see that. I was sad that after he came off is when Augsburg scored. Uh, he, he had some movement. He had some involvement. I had that one on in the background while I was watching another game, a la Graham Ruffin. So anytime the name Ricardo Pepe was said or Pepe was said, I had to look at the screen. His parents were there, so they definitely wanted there to be that sort of highlight moment when he gets to run over and celebrate a goal. Alas, it was not meant to be. Alas, it was meant to be for Dortmund fans that Augsburg got their goal. And if people haven't seen it, uh, I've been playing FIFA 22 lately. My major gripe is that when you're on a higher difficulty, there are moments when the game just decides, like, nope, your opponent is scoring. There is nothing that can be done. You will not get the ball back. They will score from 40 yards out. That's how it's going to be. And this goal, goal was just Augsburg getting chance after chance after chance. And it it's like a scuffed shot that ends up getting headed home, but it's off of a bad cross that's off of another bad cross. And it, it all just felt like chaos. But once again, Dortmund not able to see this one out and some questions remain about their sort of ability to respond uh, when pegged back and to see games out because they go 1-0 up relatively early but don't get that other one and end up uh, getting pulled back and now they've dropped points and it feels like Bayern are feeling a little bit more confident and uh, as they historically have been. Such is life. RB Leipzig got a 1-0 win at Bochum. The recent defeaters of Bayern Munich. Uh, Leipzig in fourth spot at the moment. Over in the Liga, Barcelona got a big win over Athletic Club. 4-0 at the Camp Nou, Graham. Goals from Aubameyang, Dembele, De Jong and Depay. Dembele's goal from that really acute angle so was lovely, Graham. It was, and, and it was it was great because just moments before then, when he was subbed on, he, the, the camp now was whistling him and they're not very happy with him at the moment because he's been painted as the bad guy with these contract negotiations that aren't really going anywhere. And then a few minutes later, he does that. And then I think he also gets an assist as well for, for a goal uh, later on. But yeah, it, it was an impressive performance and generally just an impressive performance from Barcelona. I am starting to get get to the point of thinking that Barcelona might be good again. Um, They've scored 19 goals in their last six games. And when you consider that initially under Xavi, the problem was goals and attacking output, for him to have solved that so quickly, I think is is pretty encouraging. And they have Dembele, Memphis and Luke de Jong to come off the bench. And then uh, Adama, Aubameyang, who's got four goals in four games. And then Adama Traore on on the right side. Or sorry, Ferran Torres, Adama Traore and Aubameyang. That was the starting three up front. Um, yeah, they got options. They got depth all of a sudden. They do indeed. And speaking of teams uh, with a question mark over whether they're good now, Atleti, Atletico Madrid, a 2 0 win, uh, a home win over Celta. Uh, Ren and Lodi with both the goals there. Are they? Are we allowed to say they're good again now, Graham? Uh, not yet. It's a bit <laughs> early for them still. I think everyone is important for them given the situation they've managed to get themselves into. But as you say, Renan Lodi, he played at, in, uh, at left wing in this game, which is a, a new one. Obviously, he plays left wing back, so maybe not that much difference. But he played out and out left wing in this match and scores two goals. And maybe that is his best position. Maybe he's a bit of a Yannick Carrasco in that he's been playing the wrong position all his career. Jeffrey Kondogbia, also very good in this midfield after a pretty good showing against Man United. So, um, Simeone is, I think it, he's starting to look to different players or at the very least he's looking to players to give him something different. Kondogbia gets two assists in this game and that's not normally his game. So, 
Um, I think Atleti's season needed that. They needed something different, and Simeone is finding that with uh, some of his options, some of his players. Uh, second place, Sevilla beat bitter rivals Real Batista in the Seville derby uh, 2-1. They closed the gap at the top to six points. Uh, Real Madrid, they remain top with a 1-0 win over Real Vallecano. Who else but Karim Benzema getting the goal in that one? Finally, a quick look at Serie A. Uh, the best title race in Europe, Napoli have gone top of the pile. They got a 2-1 win at uh, Lazio. Goals from uh, Insigne and Fabi Nariz. Uh, in the 94th minute, that last goal coming, Graham. A, a pretty dramatic yeah. finish there. Yeah, and the way that Napoli celebrated that goal, the whole squad ran over to, um, I presume there was a contingent of away fans in the corner of the, of the, of the Olympico, and it kind of made me realise how nuts Naples is going to go if they go on and win the whole thing. Obviously, they've not won it for decades, I think, since the days of Maradona, I think. Uh, they haven't won it since then. So it, in this match, I kind of decided that uh, I'd quite like Napoli to win the whole thing. I've decided. Uh, sorry, the two eight Milan clubs and Juventus. That is, uh, I'm waving that flag until now, from now until the end of the season. So <laughs> big result for Napoli. Joe, they fry their pizzas down in Naples. Is that do anything for you? Uh, it feels like Graham's thing, to be honest, more than it, it does, does mine. Are we sure that's not just Scotland, but in Italy? <laughs> oh, yeah. goodness me. It sounds good to me. Uh, it sounds something to me. Napoli are now on top of proceedings uh, over AC Milan on goal difference. Inter are two points behind. Uh, there's two points separating the top three teams uh, after both Milan sides dropped two points uh, on Friday night. Milan uh, drawing with Udinese at the same time as Genoa drew with AC Milan. If Inter had won, by the way, all three teams at the top would be on 57 points. Um, Juventus in fourth with a 3-2 win at Empoli. A brace for Mr. Vlavic again, Graham. Yep, and uh, he is very much boosting that team, their chances at the top of Serie A. Has anyone noticed that they are just seven points off the top and all the other teams up there seem to be dropping points pretty regularly? I, I don't want to say it's an ominous sign yet, but yeah, Juventus seem to be stronger now than they were in the first half of the season. Vlaovic, Vlaovic is a big part of that. I think Moise Kane did well in this game, and I do wonder if Allegri has struck on something there, maybe a strike partnership. He has been using... Dybala and uh, you know Weston McKenney, who's now injured, of course, uh, to try and get bodies around Vlaovic, but actually just putting a strike partner up there seemed to work well. They scored three goals in this game, obviously. So, yes, things seem to be slowly improving for Juventus, I would say. And good for them. Very finally, Graham, Sassuolo. Let's talk about them. A 2-1 win over Fiorentina. Uh, the same Sassuolo who beat Inter Milan at the San Siro last week. Are they are they my new hipster team of choice? They should be, because I... I, I to be honest, uh, to give a peek behind the curtain, I just watched this match because it was on at the right time for me and nothing else was on. And uh, I really liked Sassuolo, uh, that, that front three, or, or sorry, it's not front three, it's three parts of the front four, Berardi, uh, Triori and Raspadori. Raspadori is great, I love him. Um, they're just so dangerous in quick transition. And so that was my surprise, entertaining game of the weekend. It was a, an enjoyable one. Wonderful stuff and a wonderful place to finish. Graham Ruthven, thank you so much for your weekend reviewing. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Big T, thanks as always. Thank you, my friend. And Joseph Lowry, keep on petering however you do it. Yeah, let's both stay away from those runny yolks, okay? Agreed, we're agreed. Listener, for now, we'll see you soon. Bye!